Take your uh, Bibles out. We'll come back to our prayer sheet a little bit later and find the book of Esther. It's on page 853 in my Bible. In your Bible, you'll have to find your own page number. Unless you're using the ESV, and then it'll probably still be on page 853. And uh, while, while you find the place, your place in your copy of God's Word, let me ask you to go ahead and get that study guide out before we read our text tonight. Uh, I just want to uh, read over this with you. Uh, just so you'll see some of the overview. I know some of you will take them home and read, some may not. So let's go over that a moment. Uh, let's just read over it together. From the books of Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, and Nehemiah, we know what life and faith was like for those Jews who returned to Jerusalem after Cyrus the Persian issued the decree in 539 B.C. for the Jews to be able to go back to their homeland and rebuild. However... The majority of the Jews, you'll recall, remained behind. Do you remember why they remained behind? They had established businesses and so forth in Babylon and then, of course, Persia. Ezra, you know, by the time of Esther, the Persians have defeated the Babylonians and come to power. But the Jews, the majority of Jews, had established businesses and livelihoods and uh, they stayed. About 50,000 returned to rebuild, but the majority stayed. Without the book of Esther, we would not know what became of the Jews who stayed in Persia. Okay? And so the book of es Esther is very critical for telling us what happened to the Jews who did not return. Okay? And it shows that God's covenant promises at Sinai to his chosen people are not limited by the locale or region where they live. God is Lord over the nations wherever his people dwell. The book of Esther makes no claim as to who its author is. However, the writer is very much acquainted with Jewish life in Persia and is knowledgeable about life in Susa and in the Persian palace. Esther's Hebrew name was Hadassah, meaning myrtle. Her Persian name, Esther, was derived from the Persian word for star. Now, the reign of Ahasuerus was from 486 to 465 B.C., and he's remembered by historians as a ruthless and a powerful king. Chapter 10 speaks of his reign from the perspective of the past tense, and so we can assume the book of Esther was written sometime after 465 B.C. But historical and linguistic features of Esther do not support a date later than 400 B.C. for the time of writing. The book is a literary masterpiece with profound theology. Even though the name of God is not mentioned even once, he's literally on every single page. He's fulfilling his redemptive purposes through ordinary people and events. Even people who do not know him are used by God to fulfill his purposes. Now certain features of the book of Esther have troubled some. Among these are the fact what I just mentioned. God is not specifically mentioned at all. Also it promotes a festival not prescribed in the law of Moses. The festival of Purim. Uh, some have also seen a vindictive spirit in the book that has been offensive to some. 
Um, additionally, as we'll see, Mordecai and Esther do not always appear to have quite the moral conviction of Daniel, for example, who flat out refused to compromise his character by taking part in the ways of the Babylonian court. Mordecai and Esther, by way of contrast, do not seem to oppose Esther becoming the wife of a pagan king who was not Jewish or of being a part of the king's harem should her bid to become queen fail. However, it must be noted that the biblical writer does not in any way make a judgment on them for this. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, criticized the book on grounds that it was too aggressively Jewish and seemed to have no gospel content. Nevertheless, it was recognized as being scripture by the Jews well before the time of Christ. For a period of time, it was more readily accepted in the canon of scripture by the Western church than by the Eastern church, though, of course, it came to be accepted by the Eastern church uh, as well. Esther explains the origin of the festival of Purim among the Jews. The word Purim is derived from the Persian word pur, meaning lot. And it recalls how Haman, the enemy of the Jews, cast lots to determine the best day to carry out his plan to exterminate them. Of all the Jewish festivals, Purim is the most secular but also one of the most joyful. Down to the present day, Jews celebrate this festival. Uh, in fact, it's around now, uh, months of February, March. They celebrate this festival and read the book of Esther as a part of the celebrations uh, surrounding it. Children are given rattles so that whenever the name of wicked Haman is mentioned in the reading, they can take the rattles and make a loud noise in order to drown out his name. Uh, while the message of the book is certainly celebrated during Purim, it's also celebrated in a wider context in general as it points out the preservation and survival of the Jewish people all down through history. Despite the fact that they have encountered many Hamans and those who have wished to wipe them out or do them harm in some way. While the story of Esther contains many aspects of all good narrative with suspenseful plots that rise and fall and rise again, another literary device is also used, that which Aristotle referred to as uh, peripety. Peripety is a sudden turn of events which reverses the anticipated outcome of the narrative. As the introduction in the Zondervan NIV Study Bible edited by D.A. Carson points out, the peripety in Esther mirrors that in overall redemptive history in the Bible. We would expect nothing but death and judgment, but through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, believers experience the ultimate reversal of outcome. All Christians everywhere of all times can join in the celebration of the preservation of the Jewish people because through them, the Messiah was born in the flesh. Regardless of Pharaoh or the Babylonian exile or Haman or Herod or anything else, God's plan to bring his son into the world to be our savior cannot be stopped. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God is building a new community made up of Jews and Gentiles, which is his church. We too may face many dangers in life. While God may not spare everyone of every trial this side of heaven, we can nonetheless rejoice in the fact that our God is sovereign 
And even the most wicked people in the world cannot stop God's ultimate promises from coming to pass. Regardless of where we live and work in the world, God is providential over his children. There's not a place we can be where we are beyond the sight or care of God. This should be a great comfort to those who are his people. Those of us in the New Covenant can also learn much from those in the Old Covenant who would not bow the knee to earthly powers that raise their hand against God and God's people. While God is the hero of the book of Esther in preserving his people, we should also be grateful for the people like Mordecai and Esther who responded in faith and obedience and were used as instruments in God's hand to accomplish his purposes. They serve as a great example to us of faith, fortitude, courage, and endurance. Uh, keep that on hand as we go through the book of Esther. And in coming days and years, I trust that you'll keep that on hand. And uh, that'll give you a little bit more information on the book of Esther as you study it on your own. Now tonight, I want us to look at chapter 1. And we're going to talk about God's advanced planning. God's advanced planning. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vasti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine... He commanded Mehuman, Bizta, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the wise men who knew the times for this was the king's procedure toward all 
who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Ad Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before the before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will, be, will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mumu uh, Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Somebody has said that if Adolf Hitler would have read and studied the book of Esther instead of Mein Kampf, the entire course of world history might have been changed. Because he would have learned how God protects his people. Now the setting for the book of Esther is in the land known today as Iran. Before 1935, it was still known as Persia. Now, I remind you that Esther lets us know what happened to the majority of Jews who stayed behind when Cyrus came to power and issued the edict that the Jews could leave the land of their captivity and go back home to Judah. We know that a minority went back home, as I said earlier, about 50,000. They rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple and the walls around the city. And we have books like Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi all talk about the remnant of those who went back home. And so without Esther, we would not know about those who did not return. Now, some people believe, and this may be true, that a lot of the problems that the Jews faced in Persia that we're going to read about in Esther could have been avoided had they simply gone back home. 
it would appear to be disobedience that they didn't go back home. And because they didn't go back home, they suffered in the land of Persia, and they could have avoided all of this. Now, as we get into chapter 1, we see the table being set for the entire story. We see the hand of God working even in unfortunate circumstances. You know, Proverbs says that God directs the heart of a king. Amen? Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Isn't that great? Now, the first thing I want you to see with me tonight is the regal dinner. The regal dinner in verses 1 to 9. Uh, Ahasuerus throws this great feast. Now, Ahasuerus is his title. Like Caesar was for the Romans. Or Pharaoh was for the Egyptians. Does anybody know what this guy's actual name is? Xerxes, exactly, Xerxes. Now, history tells us that physically he towered over all of his contemporaries. He was a very tall man. But history also tells us that as a leader, he didn't even come close to being what his father Darius the Great was or his grandfather Cyrus the Great. He simply didn't have their mental capabilities or their leadership skills. But nonetheless, he was the most powerful ruler of his day. The well-known church historian Kenneth Scott Latourette says that not even the prince of Wu, who headed the great Chow dynasty uh, of China at the same time, not even he could claim to rule over a more vast empire than Xerxes had. So he was a very powerful ruler. And so far, he's gotten off to a good start as a leader. Soon after his ascension to the throne in 486 B.C. and prior to the events of the book of Esther, he had brutally crushed revolts in both Egypt and in Babylon. But he was very soon to meet his match. He was going to lead the Persians into battle against the Greeks. And the Greeks were going to defeat him and humiliate him not once but twice. But as the book of Esther opens, he must be feeling pretty good about himself. And so what he does, he hosts this regal dinner for all of his officials that lasted 180 days. And this took place at Shushan, with, which is the, the Hebrew rendering of the Greek Susa. Now Susa was the winter and the spring palace area. It was one of four capital cities in the Persian Empire. And Susa, that's where this feast occurs. 
Now, it's said that Susa was a, a very luxurious environment. It's said that it was a garden paradise fit for a king. It abounded in fruits and flowers and was particularly famous for a specific type of lily from which the city had received its name. Now, it's believed that what we are supposed to see here is that he rotated his officials in and out of this dinner for 180 days. Not that the feast lasted that long for everybody. Because had it lasted that long for everybody, that would have meant that his government was shut down and basically non-functioning for a period of six months. And so it's believed that what we see is the ongoing feast where the personalities change. He just keeps rotating different personalities through. And then at the end of six months, he gives a feast to end all feasts. And at this feast, he shows off his vast wealth to everybody. You know, historians tell us about the vast wealth of Xerxes. Now, the purpose in this dinner, apparently, was to consolidate all of his rulers together and get them to feeling pretty good about the wealth and the power of the Persian Empire because he knows that he's fixing to take them to war against the Greeks. And so in preparing them to go to war against the Greeks, he's hosting this regal dinner and he's trying to get everybody pumped up and get everybody feeling like the Persians are invincible. That's probably the purpose of this dinner. Now, it seems that the biblical writer wants us to see that despite the greatness of the Persian Empire and the wealth and the power of this particular king, everything is not all well. There are cracks in the empire. Things are not as they appear. You know, folks, we can't judge by the outward, can we? Do you remember when Israel did that on one occasion? In choosing their first king. What'd they do? They chose Saul. Because what, what did they say about Saul when they saw him? He was tall, dark, and handsome. This must be God's man for us. Look at him. He towers over everybody else, and he's a good-looking man. And so they picked Saul. And Saul turned out to be a, a disappointment and a disaster. You can't always judge by the outward. And folks, the things that impress the world are not to impress us. What's to impress us is a heart that trusts God. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. We should also see that even the wealth and the power of kings is no match 
for the sovereign hand of Almighty God. You know, world leaders may fancy themselves as being the ones who are in charge and calling the shots. But they're mistaken. They're not. God's in charge. The Bible says God puts down one leader and he raises up another. He puts down one nation and he raises up another. History is his story. Well, secondly, I want you to see the royal divorce. The royal divorce. Beginning there in verse 10. Now, why the women had a separate party is a little bit unclear. There's been some conjecture on this. Some have speculated that they did not consider it proper to have the men and the women together. But you know, the ancient Persians don't seem to have been as strict on this type of thing as some of the other ancient cultures. So it's doubtful that that in and itself would have been it. Others speculate that it may be that the men back then simply didn't want to involve the women folk in the government affairs. Why bother the women folk with that? As part of the partying going on and the regal dinner going on, the men are going to be talking politics and war and the business of the empire and the women aren't, they're, they're not going to want to be a part of that. So they have their separate party. Or it could be that Xerxes is trying to show himself as being all the more generous. He's letting Vasti and the women folk have their own party on his nickel. Well, Vasti must have been quite a looker. Because just when all the men got drunk, Xerxes figured he's going to show off her beauty. Now, some people even speculate that what Xerxes is asking Vasti to do because he wants her to come before all the men wearing the royal crown, that what we're to read between the lines with is she is to become, she's to come before all the men folk without any clothing on. In fact, one of the rabbinical commentaries, one of the midrashes on this particular event, some of the ancient rabbis describe what was going on here. Uh, they say what was going on, the men folk at this party started talking about which region of the Persian Empire and which region of the world had the most beautiful women. Oh, we got the prettiest women over here. No, we got the prettiest women over here. Oh, so-and-so over there's got the prettiest women. And Xerxes says, have you seen my wife Vashti? You guys want to see her? I'll call for her. And the men responded only if she will come before us disrobed. Again, that's one of the particular Jewish midrashes on this text. Well, at any rate, you notice that verse 10 says the king did this when he was merry with wine. 
In other words, he was drunk. Drunkenness leads people to do stupid things, doesn't it? Folks, <laughs> amen to that. That's why the Bible condemns drunkenness. With alcohol, people can do dumb stuff and become a stumbling block to others. And drunkenness seems to be the problem here. Because when his heart is merry with wine, when he's drunk, he makes this demand. Well, he makes this demand. What's Vasty do? She refuses. Uh-oh, we got problems now. <laughs> You know, let me stop here also and inject that, that choices are a powerful thing. You know, God gives us a free will. Now, it's a free will that since the fall is in bondage to sin. Okay? But in our free will and our choices in life, that we, we see that what goes along with our choices... Our consequences, right? Our choices, our decisions have consequences. Well, she chooses to refuse. She makes the right decision. I'm convinced Vasty makes the right decision. But it has far-reaching consequences. Folks, for the good and for the bad, we need to be careful about our decisions in life and our choices in life. And we daily need to be asking God for wisdom. Well, the king is in a crisis now. He's fixing to lead his men and his nation into war against the Greeks. And it appears... He can't even control his own wife. What kind of leader is he? It's, it's an embarrassment to him. And so he takes up counsel with his most trusted advisors and they decide that what's got to be done is Vasti's got to go. When all the women across the empire hear what she's done, boy, we're going to have a ruckus on our hands. It's going to be chaos in homes all over the Persian Empire. We're going to have a, an ancient women's lib movement. <laughs> and so these advisors, they get together and and. I think in hindsight, we can probably say what they did was maybe overkill. You know? Pride and embarrassment that can go with pride can cause us to do that, right? Overkill. To protect our image, we can end up making decisions that are out of proportion to the situation at hand. You take a man at work. He goes into the boardroom tomorrow at work. And everybody's meeting. And he throws out an idea. And his boss shoots down his idea. And he's embarrassed. 
and he rashly quits. He quits his job because his boss shot down his idea. Overkill. Things like that happen. Still another principle we see here is that an angry, vengeful spirit is also dangerous when it comes to making decisions. If we're highly emotional about a situation and, and we seek revenge, chances are that the decision we're making is going to be the wrong decision. No wonder the Bible tells us that we need to be quick to listen and slow to anger for the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. The king and these advisors are angry at what Vasti has done and we're going to show her. Well, we know that Xerxes was a king who was known to be impulsive and rash at times. He had ordered the building of a bridge, a large bridge that got washed away. And he gathered together all the engineers that had come up with the plan for that bridge. True story. He had their heads chopped off because the bridge they designed washed away. So we know Xerxes could be rash and do things that were overkill. You know, still another principle here I think is we need to be very careful who our counselors are, right? Our counselors can have quite an impact on us. Mimukin's plan sounds good, but again, probably overkill. But folks, behind this whole scene in hindsight, you can see the hand of God at work, right? Does it remind you of anybody else in the Bible? God at work behind the scenes and circumstances. Do you think of anybody else? Joseph, exactly. His brothers do to him what they do. He gets sold into slavery. He's there in Pharaoh's court, and Pharaoh's wife makes a pass at him. He refuses. He, she falsely accuses. He ends up in prison and. And all these things are happening to Joseph, but behind it all, what do you see? The unseen hand of God. You get in the book of Exodus, and you see the same thing. This order that all these baby boys have to be killed. Moses is hidden in a basket out in the edge of the water in the reeds. What's going on? God is raising Moses up. Behind circumstances, the unseen hand of God at work. Daniel. Folks, it doesn't have to be obvious, earth-shaking miracles to say that's the hand of God. In the Bible, we see the hand of God at work 
through everyday normal human circumstances. Circumstances just like you face every day. Man plans, but God overrides man's plans. God's in charge of human affairs. Folks, you can be assured that when the welfare of God's people are concerned, God's at work, maybe even before we realize it. The scenario, it's interesting, the scenario that is going to threaten God's people in the book of Esther is still a ways off. And yet, here is God already putting one down and raising another up preparing for that situation that they're going to face in the future. It kind of reminds me of that poem, Footprints, about God's unseen hand. You know what I'm talking about, that poem, Footprints? If you've never read that poem, you know, a guy's walking along on the beach, there's two sets of footprints, his and God's and then he goes into troubled times in his life and one set of footprints disappears and he only sees one and he says God at the most needful times in my life you deserted me God says what are you talking about there's only one set of footprints and he says my child that's when I was carrying you. God is on the scene working here before Mordecai or Esther or anybody else even recognized it. Some lessons I want you to see tonight. Lesson number one, the most obvious lesson that I've already alluded to, is that God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind. God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind. Number two, God watches over his children. And number three, there is a need to choose our advisors carefully. Looking at it from a different angle, from the angle of Xerxes. So God sovereignly is over the affairs of mankind. God watches over his children and there is a need to choose our advisors carefully. Now folks, I think you're in store for one of the great dramatic stories of the Bible. You know, kind of like kind of like Ruth or Jonah. Something like that. One of, one of the great stories of the Bible.
Any questions or comments before we close tonight? No? I hope you've read the book in its entirety. I hope you'll read it in its entirety in a couple of translations. And I hope in addition to the little intro I gave you on the book, you'll, I trust you've got a good study Bible. Most study Bibles have excellent introductions to books. And not only that, but little commentary notes at the bottom of each page. If you don't have a good study Bible, go out and get one. They, they help immensely.